those of you who are visiting, we've been going through the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read this phrase about the Lord, whom God displayed, that's what God did, God displayed him publicly. It was not hidden what the Father required of the Son. It's not mysterious. It's not secret. It's not behind the curtain or behind the scene. It's nothing vague or confusing about it. With clarity, God did something. He required that the Son be displayed publicly. He made a public display of his own Son, and it was a public display, as you know, of intense humiliation and of mockery and of abuse and of uh, torturous treatment leading ultimately to death. In fact, it was so severe and so dramatic and so final, uh, it begs the question, why? What's the purpose of it all? In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, gives us the answer, it said all this, this public display of the Lord Jesus in his crucified state served, it says, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, I'll bet you, if I was a betting man, that uh, very few people here use the word propitiation in your normal conversation today. It's just not one of those words that typically appears in our conversation but it is a word loaded with theologically significant meaning. Uh, to be um, simple about it, it means God no longer is angry with us. To be just clear and non-technical, propitiation means we are no longer liable. We were, uh, but for those of us who are in Christ, the one who was publicly displayed, for us it means we are no longer liable to the wrath of a holy God. And why not? Because propitiation means God the Father is satisfied with what has been provided for sin, and that is the death of his own son. There's something really, really even more interesting about the word propitiation. Uh, its Hebrew equivalent is used to describe the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which you have read about. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was a feature, uh, was part of the furnishings in the tabernacle, a movable tent, and then ultimately in the more permanent temple. It was in a place called the Holy of Holies that had restricted access. Ordinary people couldn't get to it. It was made of gold. The high priest uh, was required to, to participate in various ministrations there at the Ark of the Covenant. It, this golden box, contained various significant objects. The top of it, it was called the mercy seat, and the Hebrew word for it is propitiation. Would you, would you give that just a little bit of thought as I read to you from Exodus chapter 25? It says... You shall make a mercy seat, and that is the word propitiation. You shall make a propitiatory or a propitiation mercy seat. You shall make this God commanded Moses to command the people, and it shall be a pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, 
and facing one another. You shall put the mercy seat on top. You shall put the propitiation on top of the ark. And God said, there I will meet with you. Don't miss this. God provided a place of contact between him, otherwise unapproachably holy. He provided a place of contact between him and sinful man. He's holy, unapproachably so. We are sinful, irreversibly so. And yet God provided a point and a place of contact, and it was at this very place, this mercy seat, this propitiation, which was in the holy of holies. And I mentioned it was a restricted place. It was only the high priest, Aaron, who could go through the holy place, through the curtains, into the holy of holies, and he, only one time of year, on a day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. He was the representative of the people, but only he, not the people, not the others, could enter to the Ark of the Covenant and stand before the mercy seat in the presence of God. But even he, Aaron, though he be the designated high priest and the representative of all the people, even he could not just casually go into the holy of holies. He had to do something. He had to bring something with him. Do you know what it was that he had to bring with him into the holy of holies? It was blood. Listen, think about this and take a look at this depiction of the priest ministering at the Ark of the Covenant as I read to you a little passage from Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the Ark or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, a full application, a complete and thorough application of the blood as a means of atonement before Almighty God at the place of meeting, at the propitiation, at the mercy seat. Aaron, representing all the people, could freely and without fear, though I bet he feared quite a bit, he could enter into this place, into the very presence of God because of the blood. He could come to the mercy seat. He could stand in the place of mercy in the very presence of God. He could stand before the propitiation which was offered in the blood. He could do this because of the blood. The mercy seat was the place where guilty men and holy God could be in the same place at the same time because of the blood. And this word propitiation that we're reading about by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, is the very word for mercy seat as used in the Old Testament, folks. You know where this is going, don't you? Jesus is the propitiation of God. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans. It meant something for the people 2,000 years ago. We have to work hard on it because, as I say, we don't use the word propitiation typically anymore. Paul is saying, Jewish people, 
Do you remember what God commanded you to do when the temple stood? Do you remember what Aaron, the high priest, what he had to do? Do you remember how God had him come with an application of blood before the mercy seat? Jesus is the mercy seat. Yeshua is the mercy seat. But not just for Jews, for Gentiles as well. His blood is the means by which sinful people can confidently stand in the presence of holy God. Listen, Christmas means everything. Folks, if God didn't reduce himself to enfleshment in the form of a babe who would live so as to die, so as to be the propitiation for our sins, we would be locked in it and subject to the wrath of God. We could not because we're sinful, ever think that we could stand in the presence of holy God but for the application of the propitiating blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat. The mercy seat of the old covenant was hidden behind a veil, a curtain, and was a restricted place. But the mercy seat, the propitiation which we're reading about in the new covenant here in Romans, it's not restricted at all. No, the text says he, Jesus, has been displayed publicly for the world to see and even believe on. It's the suffering of the Lord Jesus, which is the propitiation, the place of mercy, the point of contact between holy God and guilty people because of the blood. There's something else to remember about all this. The Ark of the Covenant was not empty. As I mentioned, there were various items of significance in it. And among these were the stone tablets on which were inscribed the Ten Commandments of God. They occupied a place, you see, under the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. These stone Tablets housed in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat represented God's morality and ethics. They represented God's standards of holiness, which every one of us has broken at one time or another and in one way or another. But when the sacrificial animals of old were killed, when their blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the broken laws of God, the violated commandments of God were atoned for by the death of the animals instead of by the death of the Israelites. The mercy seat covered the law of God. So too, the mercifully supplied blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, has provided an atonement and a covering for our sinful disobedience with reference to the commandments of God. The law of God is in force. It's good. It's a reflection of his moral character. But the blood covers our violation of the laws of God. It's marvelous, folks. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, God's broken laws, which, because we broke them, stood between God and us. It was a hindrance to our access to God. We couldn't be intimate with him. We couldn't converse. There was no communion and no contact because we have disobeyed the law of God. But through the shedding of the blood of the publicly displayed Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, this place of judgment became instead the place of propitiation and mercy. Folks, do you get it? The babe born in Bethlehem, Christ, is our mercy seat 
And he has been displayed publicly by God as such. To the extent by faith I've accepted him as propitiation for my sins, the Father is no longer angry with me. I'll no longer be a recipient of his wrath. It was fully outpoured on the whipped and beaten, pierced through body of the Lord Jesus Christ on my behalf. So though I must admit I have violated God's laws, so have you. It's covered by the mercy seat, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the text says, Romans 3 verse 25, all this was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness. Why? Well, you see, in the forbearance of God, the patience, the control, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Do you believe that people before uh, the Lord Jesus sinned? People from Adam to the Lord. Do you believe they sinned? Oh, yeah. People are people. For all have sinned and fall short of God's standards. So people before the crucifixion of Christ sinned. Paul anticipates critics. Remember we spoke about a kind of a Greek a device called the diatribe? where it's a sort of a debate technique where you, you make your point by responding to the criticism of an imaginary critic. So Paul continues to do this in Romans, and he's imagining a critic saying, God, he can't be just, he can't be righteous, because if he was righteous, he would have more fully judged the sins of those committed before Christ. I mean, he really didn't fully, in full measure, judge their sin. After all, they sinned plenty, and life goes on. Many of them lived only to die of natural causes. God can't be just at all. And you see, they would question the righteousness of God. So now Paul is addressing that, and he is saying, no, 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 no. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the full outpouring of judgment and wrath upon the sins of those who sinned before Christ, but that means he only suspended judgment. He never revoked it. So what does this mean? Folks, it means the sacrifices of the Old Testament, you know, all the animal sacrifices and stuff like that, do you know they were temporary and symbolic? Do you know they didn't really get the job done? Did you know that? Not my opinion. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Listen, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It was a temporary symbolic covering. They anticipated in full measure the ultimate atonement, which one day would come. So God, in his forbearance, did not pour out the fullness of his wrath and judgment upon sin and sinners before Christ. Instead, he offered a symbolic and temporary sort of means of atonement in anticipation of the ultimate atonement, which would one day be offered for us. It was 2,000 years ago through the one who was displayed publicly as a propitiation for sins. So have you ever been asked by someone, how were people before Christ saved? Have you ever been asked that question? How were people in the Old Testament saved? In a very real sense, Old Testament believers 
were saved, if you pardon the expression, on credit. They lived in anticipation of the anticipated prophesied Messiah. They participated by faith in the temporary and symbolic means of atonement that God required of them. But that didn't provide ultimate salvation. They simply responded to what they had by faith. And on that basis, God in advance credited righteousness to their account, even though their debt had not yet been paid. They had to wait for the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it could, it could be said that people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in a promised Savior, and people in the New Testament and after are saved by faith in a provided Savior. Everybody is saved the same way. People before Christ, saved by faith in a promised Savior. People afterwards, people saved by faith in a provided Savior. But now, God has vindicated. Paul is telling us God has vindicated his righteousness because all the sins committed beforehand, before the time of Christ, and temporarily and symbolically atoned for, have now permanently been atoned for. Justice has been fully served when the Lord Jesus was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. At that point, sin was fully and finally judged, and this demonstrated the righteousness of God. So Christ's death keeps a holy God from being accused of being unrighteous and looking the other way from sin. In this, he demonstrated his righteousness, and verse 26 tells us, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, Paul's present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Folks, in a sense, in human terms, God is faced with a dilemma, a divine dilemma, and it's this. How can he be both just and also the one who justifies sinners. Those are competing objectives. They seem to be incompatible. God is faced with quite a dilemma, don't you think? I mean, if he simply pronounces sinners to be forgiven, he could be charged with injustice, you see? What would you think of a judge who lets everyone off the hook? You'd be up in arms. So, too, with reference to God. So... So, how could he be both just and justifier? You see, if he simply says everyone's pardoned and forgiven, he could be charged with injustice. But if he judged sin, he could be accused of being unmerciful, you see? So, how can he be both just and the justifier? Folks, the blood of God's own son allows him to be both Look, it's easy to see how God could be just. All he has to do is send every guilty one of us to hell. He's just. And it's easy to see how God could be the justifier. All he has to do is tell every guilty sinner he's off free. But only God could find a way to be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this he demonstrated by requiring a sacrifice for sin which he himself in his mercy provided. Folks, 
there's no way we could ever imagine such a solution to this dilemma. On the one hand, he's just. On the other hand, he's merciful. And on the cross, both otherwise competing objectives are harmonized, made compatible, and operate together. Folks, <laughs> we could understand how if someone is a violator of the law of the land, the judge would call him to task and judge him for it. But we could not imagine that that same judge would take the place of the one who violated the law and pay the penalty for him. And that's exactly what God did. If Jesus did not come to be born, live, experience life on our plane, relate to us, become enfleshed, do all things we do yet without sin, ultimately take to the cross and be displayed publicly as a propitiation, but for the Christmas event which started it all, you and I would be without hope we would be locked in our sin. We would be desperately looking for a solution to it, and there is none. We'd have to pay the penalty ourselves eternally. It would be eternal separation from the God who is the basis of the satisfaction of all needs. It would be hellish to live eternally with intense dissatisfaction of all fundamental needs. That would be hell indeed. I got to tell you, it changes your life when you understand the Christmas event, and why it was necessary for Almighty God to condescend and reduce himself to a babe and fleshed so as to suffer and die in our place, thus satisfying God's attributes and making him both just, oh, the law has been fulfilled, and justifier by mercy. He paid the penalty for our sin. This concept so grabbed a man named William Cowper that his life was changed. Cowper lived in the uh, 18th century. He was a well-known, maybe you know of his name, British poet. He looked something like this. And poor William had a very unhappy life. Uh, his, uh, he suffered from depression during most of his life. His mother died when he was six, and of necessity, he was sent to a boarding school where he was bullied and beaten and abused by many of the other boys for a long period of time, such that later, in his late 20s, he tried to commit suicide, and he, against his will, was put in an asylum, not a very uh, warm and friendly environment in those days. He was put in a structured, protected environment, an asylum for the mentally deranged because of his suicide attempt, you see. He struggled, Cowper did, with guilt and this terrible, overwhelming guilt. And he would often cry out. He would cry out, my sin, my sin, oh, for some fountain open for my cleansing. That was his cry. Well, the principal doctor in this asylum, as it turned out, was a committed Christian. Isn't it wonderful that God has his people in all places? The head doctors in this asylum was a committed uh, Christian, gently, softly, Sensitively, over time, he guided Cowper into the only fountain that could wash away uh, the guilt of his sin. Cowper uh, got radically saved, came to know the Lord Jesus. One day, he, in the process of this, he opened the Bible, and you know what he did? He read the very passage we've just reflected on tonight. He read Romans chapter 3. He read, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And Cowper, when he read Romans 3, these very verses, he responded by saying, immediately I received strength to believe and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made. My pardon in his blood. And in a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Wish I had a better ending to the story. Cowper continued to struggle with severe depression for the rest of his life. A subject for another day is how could it be that a truly reborn, regenerated Christian would still suffer with depression? There are some who would say it shouldn't be. It can't be. It's not possible. Those are people who've never struggled with depression. Therefore, with all due respect, those are people who know not what they're talking about. It's very possible to have no crisis of faith, but to have a crisis of emotion. Cowper no longer had a crisis of faith. He put his faith in the mercy seat in the Lord Jesus, and he knew of his assurance in heaven forevermore. But this brain and all of its swirling chemicals and all of this stuff can still go so awry that it brings about depression and anxiety. I beseech you, tread lightly if you seek to minister to suffering Christians in emotional state of affairs you can't fathom nor understand. I'd be careful about trying to resolve it for them by a verse of scripture. Be careful. You don't know what you're doing. You wouldn't perform surgery on a cancer patient. Don't perform quick surgery on someone suffering from emotional distress. Someday we'll talk more about this. But right now, I just want you to know, Cowper got fully saved and yet still struggled with depression. Oh, how God used it. The depth of his poetry and hymn writing was attributable to the depth to which his depression drove him. He developed reflection, introspection, sensitivity, the likes of which he might not otherwise have had, but for the emotional struggle he was experiencing. And even his, in his depression, he wrote marvelous hymns. And the words to one are these, listen, there is a fountain. Cowper wrote this, there is a fountain filled with blood. It's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. What about it? Well, sinners plunged beneath that flood. What happens to them? They lose all their guilty stains. We ought to give as much reflection to it as he obviously did to help you. Listen to the words as it's sung. Those words came out of the broken heart and impaired mind of someone who found absolute release from the guilt of his sin. The moment he saw Jesus to be the propitiation for his sin, the mercy seat, he made a decision to believe on him and his life changed forevermore. He went through the rest of his life and on into eternity, absolutely guilt-free. And Cowper's experience can be your experience during this Christmas season. The moment you accept the Lord Jesus as personal Savior, 
God's wrath, having been fully outpoured upon him, will in no wise victimize you. You will be seen to be someone no longer at odds with God, but someone adopted into his family, in his embrace, and on the road to eternal life, I beseech you. Following the steps of Paul, following the steps of Cowper, following the steps of many even here today who have reckoned on the publicly displayed Lord Jesus Christ, a place of mercy, who because of his shed blood has provided a safe place, a meeting place whereby sinful us can stand without fear in the presence of Almighty God. Some of us don't fear him with whom we will have to make do. We look forward to our face-to-face experience. What about you? The Bible says his perfect love displayed in the sacrifice of his son is meant to cast out fear. Wouldn't it be better for you to accept the babe born in Bethlehem who grew to be the sacrificed Savior of the world. Therefore, be assured that when you stand before his father one day and he says to you, what did you do with my son? You'll say, I put every ounce of my faith in him for the remission of my sins. And the father will say, then you are my son. You are my daughter. And we are together forevermore. Would you think about that as we sing this hymn together one more time? Could you please stand and let's sing this together, John Martin.